As we come to God's word, you might want to turn back to uh, Romans chapter 1 as we look at these verses uh, together. And as we do that, let's again pray. Father, we thank you for this word, but we are conscious that in order for this not simply to be an intellectual exercise or a time when we can think of other things, we need your Holy Spirit to be at work in our midst. And we thank you that you promise that that does happen as your word is taught And so we pray that we may be aware of that, that we will indeed hear your voice speaking to us, that you will challenge us where we need that, and you will encourage us where we need encouragement. But above all, may we be aware of the greatness of who you are. For your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. When you hear the word gospel, What do you think? Do you think of black gospel choirs or a gospel meeting in some hall in the middle of the countryside? Do you think of it in a slightly negative way as being a bit fundamentalist and not the kind of word that you use too much? Or maybe you think a lot more positively than that. You believe the gospel. You consider yourself to be a Christian. But Since you know the gospel, it's not something that you need to hear too often. It's necessary for other people. But if this is a gospel message, then you can switch off. In fact, you may feel that Christians need to hear much more than the gospel. The surprising thing that we find when we read the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome that he neither thinks that the gospel is something that we don't want to mention too often because it's a bit embarrassing, nor does he think that Christians don't need to hear it. Now, there are many reasons you could give as to why those who call themselves Christians need to keep on hearing the gospel. But there seem to be two main driving forces for Paul in the book of Romans. Even if you're not overly familiar with this New Testament letter, you probably know that it contains a lot of doctrine, And certainly many people think of it as Paul's great doctrinal masterpiece. But it was never Paul's intention to sit down and write a short textbook of doctrine. He wasn't thinking to himself, I've got a couple of quiet months coming up and I'd like to write something that's a bit meatier. Uh, I wonder wonder would the, the church in Rome like to hear it. Just as in all his letters... Paul is writing with a specific church in view and is writing to address specific issues for that church. And with the church in Rome, there seem to have been two main issues that he has in mind as he writes. Paul's first reason for writing this letter was to encourage the Christians in Rome to become mission partners with him. Uh, Towards the end of the letter, in chapter 15, he says that he hopes to visit them on his way to Spain so that they can assist him on his journey there. He's probably talking about practical and financial assistance that the church can give him. But later on in the chapter, he also asks them to pray for him as well, as he goes on beyond Rome with the gospel to Spain. Paul wants the Christians in Rome 
to be people who are eager for the gospel to be preached to all. But Paul not only wants to mobilize the Christians in Rome for mission, he also wants to deal with what seems to have been a bit of a problem of disunity and disharmony among the Christians in Rome. In AD 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. And that would have resulted in Jews who had become Christians still having to leave Rome because they were still classed predominantly as, as Jews. Now, when Claudius died five years later, the Jews were able to come back to Rome. And so you would have had some of these Jewish Christians coming back, but finding that church had gone on fine without them. And the roles that they had previously had had now been filled by Gentile believers who didn't see why they should give that up to someone just because they happened to have been born a Jew. So there was tension within the church and a lack of concern then for the pagan world beyond. And it's not too hard to see a bit of a connection between those two problems, is it? A church that is turned in on itself and preoccupied with its own internal disputes is probably not going to have much vision for what's happening beyond its walls. But Paul's answer to this problem of how to promote harmony within the church and mobilize people for mission beyond it is not simply to give them a pep talk and tell them to sort their act out. Instead, he tells them the gospel. I wondered did it strike you as surprising when we read verse 15? Because in it, Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. And I think it's surprising because the you to whom he's speaking are the Christians in Rome. How come he's so keen to preach the gospel to them? Haven't they heard it already? They're Christians, so they must have. Surely now they need something more. Don't they need an advanced course of some sort? Well, Paul essentially says, no. The gospel is what we need to hear and keep on hearing, even as Christians. But, of course, it must be the gospel and not a distortion of it that we hear. And that's why Paul goes to such lengths in Romans to explain what the gospel really is. It's not something you can neatly sum up in just one sentence necessarily. There's a lot to it. That's why he explains it in great detail in the book of Romans. But essentially he's saying this is still what we need to hear and understand fully, even as Christians. This morning you'll probably be relieved to hear me say I don't intend to preach through the whole of Romans to explain the gospel as Paul lays it out. But I do want to make two points about the gospel, which confirm why it and it alone can be our only motivation for harmony within our churches and for mission to a world beyond. And they come out of just two verses, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here he's making two assertions about the gospel. And the first is this. The gospel 
is God's power to rescue all who believe. If you want to catch your heading, you could say the gospel is all about rescue. When Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, we perhaps can think, well, I can imagine, Paul, why you might be a bit ashamed of it. I certainly am tempted sometimes to be ashamed, as if our Christian faith is a sort of slightly embarrassing hobby that we have, that we don't want to talk too much about. Maybe that becomes more and more the case as we're aware of a society around us that is less and less warm towards Christians or what people think Christianity is all about. But Paul's not saying, you know, there are moments when the gospel seems to be a bit of a tough sell, and quite frankly, I'd rather just keep quiet and pretend I'm not a Christian. There are plenty of people who are happy the way they are, so I'm not going to rock any boats by revealing this potentially embarrassing thing I believe. That's not actually, I think, what he's saying when he says, I'm not ashamed. Instead, I think he's saying, I have absolutely no need to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't need to apologize for it. Often, when the Bible talks about being ashamed, behind it is the idea of not being made ashamed at the end of time. So, Paul is saying that not only has he nothing to be ashamed of now, but also that at the end, he will not be shown up to be a fool, even though there may be people around who think that right now. They may be thinking, oh, poor you, Paul, with your made-up God and your Jesus and all that kind of oppressive stuff that you bring in with it. He's saying, I will not be ashamed at the end because ultimately people will see that this is true. Let's remember that Paul's society wasn't very different from our own. There are many people around us who think that we are narrow-minded or bigoted to believe the gospel. We think, they think we're wasting our money giving it to various Christian causes. They think that we're wasting our time by coming to church or reading our Bibles or praying. Or that we're missing out on life by not just living for ourselves and whatever pleasure we can get in whatever ways. We have nothing to be ashamed of. And ultimately, we will not be put to shame. We will be shown to be the wise ones. We will be shown to have made the right choice if we have accepted and believed the gospel. And the reason neither we nor Paul needs to be ashamed of the gospel is given in verse 16 as he goes on to say, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is through hearing and responding to the good news of the death of Jesus in our place and his resurrection to eternal life that God saves people from his judgment and brings them into relationship with him. The gospel is the way that God rescues us. That's what the word salvation means. And in the book of Romans, the word is used primarily to talk of God's salvation of men and women at the end of time. When those who have consistently rejected him will find themselves rejected by God and consigned to eternity in hell. But when those who have submitted to him 
and accepted their need of his rescue will be saved from hell and welcomed by him into a wonderful and perfect new creation. So the gospel is God's power not simply to make people Christians but to keep them Christians, to keep them trusting in Christ until the end of their lives. And did you notice who the gospel is for? It is for everyone who believes. Paul goes on to say, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Acknowledging that the Jews were God's covenant people and the ones to whom he first revealed his plans for salvation. And it's great that there are those today who are making that message known to Jews. Colin's going to be involved in doing that over the coming months. But it didn't stop there. Jesus didn't come simply for the Jews, although he did come for them. But it was important that the Jewish Christians in Rome heard that it's not just for those from a Jewish background. They may have been the first to hear, but that didn't make them more saved or more precious to God. Because his salvation is not confined to one nation or one type of people. That's why people on the other side of the world need to hear the gospel, but it's also why people on the other side of the street need to hear the gospel. It's important, though, that we don't miss the qualification that Paul gives in verse 16, because the gospel is not like a magic wand that we can just wave over people and turn them into Christians. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not everyone who hears the gospel will believe it. And there are plenty of people that we know who may have heard about Jesus dying to save them, but who just think that that's the kind of thing that belongs in the dark ages. In fact, they may arrogantly think to themselves, well, it might be fine for some poor people on the other side of the world who don't know any better to believe that kind of thing. They probably need to have something to look forward to because life now is pretty hard for them. But I don't need that kind of emotional support Quite frankly, I find talk of hell offensive. But just because not everyone believes, that doesn't mean the gospel isn't true, nor that it doesn't need to be proclaimed. If you knew that a bomb had been planted in the hospital nearest to where you live, would you just not tell people about it because you'd be scared that they wouldn't believe you? After all, who would believe something like that? No, if you knew that a bomb was there, you'd raise the alarm and you'd try to get the hospital evacuated and you'd keep on doing it, even if some people refused to believe you and refused to get out. Besides, their refusal to believe that the bomb is there wouldn't stop it being there if it actually was. It's only the gospel which tells us of the dreadful judgment that we are facing and reveals the power of God to rescue all who believe. And so people need to hear of this great rescue plan. That's why people need to go overseas. That's why people need to go over the road to wherever people have not still heard the good news of God's love and grace to us in Jesus It's why we ought not to be ashamed of those who are preaching and sharing the gospel with people throughout this world and why we should do our best to support what is being done to make sure that the gospel continues to go out and continues to be heard 
so that through it, God can draw to himself those people whom he has chosen to save through hearing and responding to that good news. So let's never forget that the gospel is God's power to rescue all who believe. But there's a second thing that I want us to take away from this passage, and that is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness to all who come in complete reliance. If you want to put it more simply, the gospel is all about reliance. As Paul moves on into verse 17, we read, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, righteousness is not the kind of word that we use all that often nowadays. When was the last time someone said to you, I was impressed by his righteousness? But we do all have a sense of what is right. We know that some things are right things to do and others aren't. And when we're talking of the righteousness of God, we're talking of the fact that he always does what is right. He is above reproach. He is perfect in all that he does. And we see that righteousness in the way that he has made it possible for us to be rescued. You see, the righteousness of God means that he cannot be indifferent to sin and wrong. There's nothing right about the judge who tells a convicted murderer or rapist that he can go free because what he's done doesn't really matter that much. So God needs to punish sin, punish our rebellion against him, our desire just to live for ourselves. But at the same time, he loves those who have sinned. He doesn't want to have to punish them. And the wonderful way that he has made it possible to deal with sin is through punishing his son in our place. Right from the start of the Bible, we read of God's promise to save his people and to remove the offense of their sin. And he proved himself righteous by doing what he said he would do through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Paul talks here about the righteousness of God, he's not just speaking about the fact that God always does what is right. I think he's also speaking of the righteousness that God gives to those who trust in Jesus. To every Christian, he gives righteousness. He gives them a right status before him. He moves us from being in the wrong to being in the right. And how does that change come about? Is it by our trying the best that we can to be as good as we can? Is it that God flicks a switch and all at once Rather than wanting to do our own thing and ending up messing things up, we instantly know and do what is right? Or do we just work a bit harder to try to do the right thing? No, all of this comes about through faith. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 17, as he speaks of a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. But what is faith? Is it just a feeling? Or believing a set of facts? Well, interestingly, in Romans, the words faith and obedience are used almost interchangeably. In verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul speaks of the obedience that comes from faith, or more literally, the obedience of faith. And he uses that same phrase towards the end of the letter. And throughout the letter, 
There are times when he uses the word obedience when he could equally use the word faith and vice versa. So faith is not simply belief, although there has to be an element of belief, obviously, but it is a belief that demonstrates itself in obedience. Put simply, when people are told that they need to submit to God, to recognize that they cannot ever make themselves right with God simply by being good, they can either obey him by accepting that that is true, by asking for God's forgiveness and seeking to live according to his standards, or they can disobey him, reject his truth, and continue to live self-centered lives. They may believe the historical facts about the life death and even the resurrection of Jesus but they don't believe that there's any need for those to have a direct bearing on their lives and in fact it's their pride that keeps them from the obedience of faith now you may not always think of those who aren't Christians as being proud and they may not see themselves in that light but that's what is behind the final phrase of verse 17 when Paul writes the righteous will live by faith he's quoting the second half of a verse from the short prophecy of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. In chapter 2 and verse 4 of Habakkuk, we read these words. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Here, the contrast is being made between those who are righteous in God's sight and those who are not. And the central issue is one of pride. The proud person, the person who is puffed up, will not accept his or her need of God. They may think that they have something to offer to God, or perhaps more likely, they'll think that they've got things sorted well enough. They know how to live life. They can get through without God's interference. Whereas the person whom God declares to be righteous is the person who is humble enough to admit that God knows best, that we haven't got all the answers, that we cannot save ourselves. We need his grace and mercy. And that message can be hard for people in any part of the world to accept. Certainly for us here, everything around us screams that we should look after number one, be good to ourselves, you're worth it. Search for the hero inside yourself. But those are all lies, ultimately. And what we need is to refuse to believe those lies and embrace God's truth. And when we do that, we find that the gospel is the powerful way in which God brings his rescue and his hope for now and for eternity. And the way in which he reveals his righteousness The gospel is truly wonderful because it tells of God's perfect rescue of rotten people. But we need to keep being reminded of that because we're in danger of thinking we're not so rotten. And we can then start to think that we're a lot less rotten than many others. Maybe even start to look down on them, whether that be in the church or outside it. Don't get me wrong, as God works in our lives, hopefully he does change us. And he makes us better in many ways. But it doesn't remove the fact that fundamentally we have rebelled against God. 
And anything that's happening in our lives is only because of him and what he is doing in us and through us. Our problem is if we start to feel that bit superior and better about ourselves, thinking it's something to do with us rather than to do with God, is that we can then fall out with other Christians, take offence easily. We can also as well fail to see the need for mission either on our doorstep or overseas because we're so caught up in ourselves. But maybe we need to be reminded of the gospel because we haven't yet truly grasped it and embraced it. Maybe we still think it's not really for us. And that if we're a bit better than our neighbours, we're fairly regular at church, then we can be good enough for God. Maybe you're even sitting in church today and not fully realising the dangerous position that you're in if you haven't asked God for his rescue. The great thing is, though, that we don't have to stay that way. If we're willing to admit that God knows best and are willing to rely on him to rescue us, he is able to do that. We simply need to admit our sin and ask for his forgiveness and start living in faithful obedience to him. And so the challenge comes to all of us. Have we truly understood the gospel? Have we understood it and accepted it for ourselves? But if we have done that, have we also understood that it is the only hope for our world? You see, many will applaud the work of Christians who are trying to alleviate suffering and poverty and end injustice. And that is all good stuff to do. But there will be many who will not think it's such a good idea to tell people to turn to Jesus. There are many who will think that if someone is a faithful follower of some other religion, we should just leave them faithfully doing that. How dare we be so arrogant as to say it is only through Jesus that you can be saved. But that is the truth. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved. And the gospel is actually not just about the here and now, even though it has implications for life now. The gospel is ultimately about the salvation that God will bring one day when we will enjoy a perfect new creation. We can't have heaven on earth, no matter how hard we try to manufacture that. Ultimately, we need to be pointing people away from this world not keeping them totally wedded to all that they can get now, but actually seeing that what we hope for is something much better to come. If the gospel is true, if it really is good news, then surely we shouldn't be sitting back and leaving it to others to spread that good news. We may not all be involved in the same way. There may not be very many of us who would be happy to stand up in front of a lot of people and explain the gospel to them. But we can bring people to hear others. But we can also speak to the people that we know about how God makes a difference in our lives. How it matters to us that Jesus has died. How this is something that we really do believe, and we really do believe to be important. And if we find ourselves half-hearted about evangelism or indifferent to world mission then surely we need to hear the gospel preached to us we need to be reminded 
It's all about God's wonderful rescue of people who did not deserve that rescue. It's all about reliance. Because we can't save ourselves and we have to rely on God to do it. But it's a wonderful message because he is the one who can do it. As we look at ourselves, our own weaknesses and inadequacies, if we're really honest, we realize, yeah, we're pretty rubbish a lot of the time. But God is not like that. He is all-powerful. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who keeps us. And so may we never tire of hearing the gospel. May we never be ashamed of it or lose confidence in it. And may that confidence motivate us to do all in our power to see that gospel spread and change the lives of others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had being reminded of what you've done for us in Jesus. We are conscious that as we go out of here, we go into a world where so many people just don't think this matters. They think it's irrelevant. They don't want to know. And that can be intimidating for us. But Lord, we pray that you will help us to go from here this morning, not daunted by that, but actually confident in you that this is true. This is good news, whether people believe that or not. May that be true of us. May we be those who have embraced that, accepted that, believe that, are living by it. But also we pray this week that maybe just in small ways, you will give us the opportunity to tell even one other person something about you, something about the hope that you offer to us in Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.